following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, this morning we'll be looking in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, if you want to turn there. And uh, follow me as we read uh, Hebrews 2, chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses um, 5 through 10. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the, wor- the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Kind of stops midstream because actually the section goes all the way to verse, to the end of the chapter, but we're going to just look at this section first. Um... And uh, as, as I've been sharing, Hebrews is, uh, is really written more as a, as a sermon than as a letter, like the writings of Paul. So it's, it's important to kind of keep the whole sermon in perspective as we go through its individual parts and pieces. And so let me just review briefly. Uh, in the first two chapters, the main point he's making is he's showing that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. And if you've been here at all in the last month and a half, you should know this. If you don't, then okay, you just need to make a big poster, right? Uh, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, by his son, right? God's revelation in Jesus is greater than the Old Testament prophets uh, because he's the complete fulfillment and culmination of all the Old Testament prophets. Uh, the son is also superior, he says, to any revelation that comes through the angels, uh, because the Son Himself in His being is superior to any angel. He reigns uh, on the throne of David as infinite, eternal God. So He's greater than the angels. Um, so that's kind of the point of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, He begins by saying, uh, turning away from His explanation of Scripture, and He applies it a little bit. And last week we saw this, that He says, if that's all true, then you need to, we need to all pay much closer attention to what. God is speaking through the Son. Uh, and really what he's been talking about, another way to, to describe this, is he's really been talking about the wonder and mystery of the incarnation. A big, long theological word that simply means God, who existed from eternity past, stepped out of heaven, came to earth, took on human flesh and blood, became a man. And uh, in, in his introduction in the first chapter, he's very careful to describe this incarnation in precise detail um, to demonstrate that the wonder and mystery of God become flesh 
did not lose, God did not lose, the Son did not lose his, his divine nature. <clears throat> right? He retained everything that was fully God. At the same time, he shows that, that Jesus was also every way fully man. Um, they, it's the combining of the full nature of God and the full nature of humanity. Um, so so he, he now comes to, um, turns back to his exposition. He's given us his little challenge. You know, pay attention. And he goes back to his argument uh, and his exposition of Scripture. And, uh, and it raises an important question. He talks a, a little bit here about uh, Jesus being made for a little while lower than the angels. And it highlights the fact that in the incarnation, when, when, when Jesus took on human flesh and blood, became man, that he did become for a time lower than the angels. In other words, his status, his rank, his position uh, was lowered. Right? And, and the question that comes up is, did, did the incarnation diminish the glory of God in some way? Did God somehow lose something of his, his, his divine being, his, his glory, by taking on human flesh and being like us? Um, and of course, the, the problem is, is not just that, uh, that he took on human flesh, but that um, you know, he, be, he, he, he went to the cross. He took on sin. Right? He took on the stain and ugliness and curse of sin as part of our redemption. Uh, so the, the question is there, did this you know, taking on human nature downgrade Jesus in some way uh, that makes him uh, have less glory than he had before? Um, and and in, chapters, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 10, this is kind of what he deals with. This is the question he's looking at. Uh, now, before we go on and talk about his argument, what he says, it's important to ask, why does this matter? You know, is this just, <clears throat> is this just one of those kind of theological questions that theologians love to debate that has nothing to do with anything in real life, right? That really is just kind of a, a pointless debate, <clears throat> Like the question, how many angels can stand on the, on the head of a pin? Uh, and if you're not familiar with why that's pointless, I'll let you explore that on you know, the Internet. But, but the reality is this is actually a significant question, even though at appearance it may not seem like it. Um, and and here's, the, here's the problem. We know that the only way we could be saved was, was for there to be an adequate sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin. Right? We know that. Uh, so in all of creation, we know that no such sacrifice exists. No amount of bulls or goats or blood of animals could adequately cover our sin. God alone could provide that sacrifice, and he did so in his son. Right? Jesus was the perfect, eternal God, perfect man, and thus his blood, his sacrifice was enough, was sufficient, was adequate. To, uh, to, to pay the price for our sin. Amen, right? Okay, but here's the question, and this is the question that we come back to. Was it right for God to do that? Right? Was, it, was it right for God to take Jesus, his son, perfect God, perfect man, and uh, sacrifice him <clears throat> on the cross for our sake? Now, the reason most of us, will, we would say, I, I, if I surveyed us all, I think most of us probably say, well, yeah, of course, that's like God's love, right? Um, but the only reason we think that is because most of us have grown up hearing that over and over again. We've kind of been brainwashed. Right? We've been indoctrinated, literally, with this principle that this is the supreme of love, 
Um, but uh, living here in Asia, for example, in, in, uh, among Buddhists, they would not see it that way, right? And you talk to Buddhist people about this, and they're like horrified. What kind of a dad is this that he would kill his own son, right? What kind of person is this Jesus that he would die such a horrible death? He must have had terrible karma, right? And so it's a good question. And even in a, just the Western secular worldview, uh, there's something that seems very wrong about this. And in fact, Paul, I, I recognize this, and he talks about the offense of the gospel. It's offensive. There's something that just seems wrong about this. Uh, why would an all-powerful... And, and, here's even the bigger question, which I may actually not answer, but I'll throw it out there because it's a big question. Why would an all-powerful and sovereign God, okay, in other words, a God who could do anything he wants, allow sin and evil to enter into the world knowing that the only way to solve the problem of evil would be to send his son into the world as a man and slaughter him on a cruel cross. Right? Uh, what kind of a God would do that? And uh, if you've had much debate with people who, who think and ask these questions, this will come up. Right? If God is good, why would he allow evil? Why would he create a world where this is possible knowing that the price that must be paid was the sacrifice of his own son? Where is the glory in all of that? Uh, or is this just a picture of some mentally deranged God playing out some kind of sadistic fantasy on the world and on his son? Right? Uh, so it is an important question because it reflects significantly on who this God is. What is his character like? Um, is God truly good or is he just insane? Right? That's, the, that's the problem and that's the question. And it's an important one that we answer. And so the writer of Hebrews uh, wrestles with it, and he's going to give us here three reasons why, in fact, the incarnation and death of Jesus is a greater glory, right, than if there was no incarnation and no suffering. Um, uh, it is greater, and therefore, it is a greater glory. Therefore, it was right and good, and perhaps even necessary for God to do it. Uh, God is perfect in all his being. God must do what is right and good, we believe. And so uh, if he, he, he is compelled to do what is most glorious, most honorable, and the most good. So that is going to help us see how Jesus' incarnation and his death specifically is a better good, is more honorable, and is most glorious. So let's look at his three, his three uh, points in, in his argument. Uh, the first reason is that Jesus fulfills our destiny. Um, and uh, remember, this is an ongoing sermon. We're just kind of jumping into the middle of it. And uh, in, um, as I said, in 2, 1 through 4, he, he gives us some, some application. You need to pay attention. Uh, and then he switches from, from uh, exhortation back to exposition, back to explaining Scripture. And as I said before, and we'll hear this over and over throughout the whole book, uh, his main text is Psalms 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Speaking of Jesus sitting on David's throne and God putting uh, all rule, all control, all dominion under the feet of Jesus. So Jesus is going to reign supreme over everything. Um, and he quotes this at the very end of chapter 1. And he takes this little break in verses 1 through 4, chapter 2, and then he jumps back into this uh, commentary on Psalm 110. 
And he does so by quoting uh, Psalm 8. Uh, and Psalm 8 speaks of subjecting the world to come or of putting everything in subjection under his feet. Right? So when you look at Psalm 110, that he's putting all of his enemies under the feet of Jesus, uh, Psalms 8 is a natural fit. <clears throat> and it makes sense that the author would, would, would jump to uh, Psalm 8. Very similar theme and topic. Uh, and uh, he raises the question, who, who's going to sit on the throne? Who's going to rule in the world to come? Uh, so he begins, before he quotes the psalm, he introduces it this way. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And of course, Jews and Christians alike all look forward to the day when this broken, pain-filled, sinful world will be changed, Right? The, the mess that this world is and all of its, you know, we saw this week another terrible shooting. There's murders, there's wars, there's disease, all of that. We look forward to the day when that's going to be done away with and there will be a new world. Um, and so he asked the question, uh, who is going to be in charge in that new world? And he says it's not angels. Right? Nowhere is it indicated in Scripture at any degree that angels will be in charge of the world to come. <clears throat> Um, and so then he quotes uh, Psalms 8, um, uh, verses, verses uh, 4 through 6, which talks about um, you know, being, the world being subjected under his feet. So, so the question is, who did God promise would wor- rule his creation? Okay, uh, I could give you a multiple choice. Here, let answer it. Who should be in charge of ruling all of God's creation. A, Jesus. B, mankind. Okay, how many vote Jesus? Okay, how many vote mankind? Wow. Well, uh, we, we know that if man has to rule the world, it's, it's probably, a, we're in trouble, right? However, we should actually look at the Bible and see what the Bible actually says because we might be surprised at what Scripture actually says here. Who is to be in charge of creation? Well, let's look at Psalms 8. Psalms 8, in, in Psalms 8, the psalmist uh, is pondering the universe. And he's pondering what, what is man in light of all of God's glorious creation. So he says in verse 3, Psalms 8, 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Uh, Do you ever feel like that? <clears throat> Maybe you could identify with what the psalmist is saying here. Uh, on a planet with now 7.5 billion people, who in the world are you, right? That, that God would, out of those 7.5 billion people, that God would pay attention to you. Um, and not only that, but, but, but the 7.5 billion people traveling through space on a tiny little speck of dust, right, in the scope of the universe. The earth is just a speck of dust, why would God, in all of his vast, expansive creation, why would he care about planet Earth or about you? And that's what the, the, the psalmist was feeling as he contemplated the, the stars and the skies and the heavens. Um, uh, who is God that he should care about us? And the word care there is a word, it's a fun word because it's actually the word used for a doctor who makes house calls. So it's kind of like this. Why would... Why would, who is God, who are you, that God would make a house call to visit you and care about you? Um, 
But as the psalmist thinks about this question, and it would be easy to come up with the conclusion, well, I must be nothing, I must be nobody, um, certainly God would not visit me. But as he contemplates this question, uh, he surely comes uh, into to thought uh, Genesis 1, the creation, and specifically Genesis 1.26, where God <coughs> describes his purpose in creating humanity. Uh, Genesis 1.26, And God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Right, so in light of Genesis 1, in light of God's purpose in creating us, uh, the psalmist says, no, we, we, I may only be one person among 7.5 billion floating on a speck of dust, but we have been made in God's image with a divine, uh, God-ordained purpose. And that purpose is to do what? To rule over creation. Right? He says, you made him, that is mankind. Remember, we're, quite, we're quoting Psalms 8. Right? This is the psalmist talking here. You made mankind for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Right? That's, that's who you and I are. We were created by God to be rulers over everything he has created. Uh, we bear something of his likeness, and we've been given a job to rule. Uh, we are not insignificant. We are not just space dust or a cosmic accident. We were created with divine purpose, uh, and there's no such thing as an insignificant human being. Uh, we are crowned with glory and honor. And he says that we are a little lower than the angels. He doesn't, that's not a bad thing, right? Okay, angels would represent like the supreme of God's created beings. And we're just one tiny little notch below them. Meaning, we're, we have gl a glory above everything else in all of creation. Everything else. And, and our purpose, uh, we, we have a purpose and a mission. And I love it that our purpose and mission is not just to clean up after the animals. Right? God, not, God did not create Adam and Eve and hand them a shovel and say, you know, these animals are like making a mess everywhere. Get to work. Clean up the barn. Right? No, that is not their purpose. It is not to take out the trash or to scrub the floor. It is to rule everything. Uh, God created the universe, handed us the keys, and told us that we are in charge. Uh, and and, and, and the, the writer of Hebrews reflects on this question, what did God mean by everything? And in verse 8 of, of, of Hebrews, he, he has his own comment. Okay, so he's done with the quote, and his first comment is, this, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Right? So he's making a comment here. He's saying, what exactly was man put in charge of? Well, he says everything, everything. There's nothing that was, not, uh, that, that was outside his control. We are to rule the universe. It is ours to command. Isn't this, isn't this awesome? The whole universe is yours, and you're, you get to drive it, right? Now, you're probably going, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on wait a minute. Wait a minute here. Uh, you know, I can, I, I, and I've had, I've had many discussions. I have solved the world's problems many times over in conversations with people. I have solved the world's problems. If I was in charge, the world would no doubt be a much better place. But clearly, I'm not in charge, right? Because all these bad things are happening, and if I was in charge... 
It wouldn't be this way. Um, well, of course, there is a problem, right? There is a problem. Uh, his intended purpose was that you and I would rule all of creation. But sin and rebellion against God has made us unfit for that job. Uh, so God has given the charge of ruling over this present world into the hands of angels, the Old Testament tells us. Right? He, he sent angels to, to govern the nations and to rule what he's created. He took it away from us because of our sin and rebellion against him. So here's the thing. I have tried to order the weeds out of my garden. I have tried to order the rats out of my ceiling. And I've tried to order the cats to eat the rats and the mosquitoes that fly to the moon, and none of them listened. You may have that experience, right? We, we, we no longer have that rule, right? We have lost it. Um, so, so the author of Hebrews continues on with more comment. He says, now, in putting everything in, subject, in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control, but at present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Amen. Hallelujah, right? Uh, the world is not paying attention. When I go out and scream at it, right? Uh, last night at 2 o'clock in the morning, the dogs outside our house were going crazy. They, they, they don't listen to me. I command you to be quiet in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Nothing happens. Um, so, 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 so what he's talking about, Psalms 8, it's important to just recap here a little bit. What Psalms 8 is talking about is not Jesus ruling the, all of creation. The point here is that you and I, mankind was intended to be governing God's creation. Right? Not Jesus. Let's ask the question again, you know, who, who gets the rule over the future world, Jesus or man? Actually, the psalmist here would have said man, humankind. That was our intended created purpose. Right. Um, so what does all this have to do with this big question? Did the incarnation decrease and diminish Jesus' glory, or did it increase it? Uh, was it good and right for God to give his son as a sacrifice for sin? Was it right and just in creating a world where evil was possible? Um, well, he now digs in by unpacking these verses, and he begins dealing with this question. Uh, and this is what he says. At present, we do not see, yet see everything in, subject in subjection to him. But what do we see? He says in verse 9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. You, see, you knew it was in there somewhere. I knew Jesus had to come in here somewhere, right? Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Um, with those words, but we see Jesus, right? But, but we see Jesus. We do not see yet everything subjected to humanity. We know that. But what do we see? What we see is Jesus, um, for a little while made lower than the angels, speaking of his incarnation. For a little while he did take on human flesh. He joined us in that status and that rank of those who were just a little under the angels, right? But he is crowned with glory and honor because of suffering and death. Right? Um, so the question is, is Psalms 8 about Jesus or about us? Kind of a trick question, because it's actually about both. Uh, the answer would be yes, it is about us. 
But it's also about Jesus. Uh, God absolutely uh, created mankind. His purpose for us was, was for us as human beings to rule. Uh, but when we read these verses through the lens of the gospel, as I shared a couple weeks ago, we need to do. We need to read the Old Testament with the eyes of, of the, the lens of the gospel. We see Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, and in light of Psalms 110, where it says God is bringing all dominion under his control, all, all of his enemies, everything under the dominion of Jesus. It's clear that what mankind failed to do because of sin, Jesus accomplished perfectly and will bring to complete fulfillment as a result of the incarnation. As the perfect God-man, he has fulfilled God's divine purpose for mankind to rule over all God's creation, not only in this world, but in the world to come. So the good news is, in the world to come, Jesus will be in control. Uh, And he will be that, though, not because he's the eternal Son of God, but as the incarnate Jesus, right? He, he, he inherits that position, not just because of his divinity, but because of his humanity, because he's fulfilling God's intended purpose for mankind. Right? So it was essential, it was necessary for, for the incarnation, for him to become man, so that he could fulfill God's intended purpose for humanity to rule over his creation. So Jesus fulfills our human destiny in himself through the incarnation, uh, the God-man who brings everything under his control. So it's true that, yes, Jesus was made lower than the angels for a time during his, his days on earth. But by this, he lived out uh, perfectly the glorious purpose of God. He's fulfilled the glorious purpose, glorious purpose of God in creating us. Um, so that's his first argument. Uh, his second point, um, and, and, and you know, if that was all there was to the incarnation, then, then the answer would be pretty easy. Well, Jesus had to take on flesh and blood because he needed to fulfill man's destiny. End of story. But of course, there is a much more difficult problem than that because Jesus just didn't come and become a man. He came and became a man and died. Right? He died. He, he it says he says he. He, he, uh, he suffered death, and not just any death. Uh, the death that was uh, on a cross, which was an instrument of punishment for criminals. Uh, it was a violent and horrible death. And of course, not only in the way he died, being betrayed and abandoned and mocked and ridiculed and beaten, rejected and crucified, but even more importantly, in the purpose of his death. Right? We know that Jesus didn't just die a terrible death, but he died a terrible death because he was the sacrifice for our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Um, and here's that question again. Was it right for God to lay on one so perfect and holy and innocent all the sins of the entire world? How could that possibly be good and right? And how could there possibly be justice in that? Um, Wouldn't it have been more right? Wouldn't it actually have been more appropriate for the guilty ones to die on that cross? And here's kind of a painful question, right? 
Wouldn't it have been better if you and I had paid for our own sins by being nailed to that cross and suffering that horrible death? Because that is what we deserve. Right? That is the wages and penalty of our sin. And the reality is it's easy to oftentimes think that my sins really aren't that bad. I might deserve punishment, but like the cross would be pretty extreme for what I did. Like more like a fine, you know. Like, you know, when you're overstay at immigration, you get to pay that extra 2,000 baht donation, right? Like something like that. But like the cross, that kind of extreme, because I'm not a murderer, right? Uh, we don't feel that we, our sins would warrant that. And the problem is that we tend to think of our sin in simply the terms of the bad things that we have done. Things like lying or cheating or stealing. And compared with the wrongs of really bad people, mass murderers and rapists, like, I'm not that bad. Like, maybe they deserve execution on a cross, but I think I should just get like a couple years in prison, right? And I'm good. The problem is that our greatest sin goes far beyond anything bad we have done, like lying or stealing or immorality or greed or pride or selfishness. Our greatest sin is that we have rejected God as king to whom we owe our deepest love and loyalty. Okay, that is our great crime, is that we rejected him as king and we have turned away the loyalty and love he deserves. Uh, we are guilty, most of all, of insurrection and rebellion against the king. And living in Thailand, we understand how this works. You can be a very moral, upright, perfect law-abiding citizen, but if you defame the king, what happens? Bad things happen, right? The whole les majestes laws uh, can be the death penalty. Well, the penalty of insurrection, the, the penalty of rebellion against the king is death on a cross. Right? And we're all guilty of that. It's interesting that at Jesus' uh, trial, uh, when Jesus is brought before Pilate, and remember, Pilate says, I have found nothing wrong in this man, and Pilate is trying to release him. And he says, you know, at the, at the festival of the Passover every year, we release a prisoner. Let me release to you Jesus. And he puts before them two options, Jesus and who? Barabbas. And what was Barabbas guilty of? Insurrection. Insurrection and murder, right? He was guilty of insurrection against the Roman government. It was a capital offense. And he deserved the cross. But what happened? Jesus, the innocent one, goes free. I mean, Jesus, the innocent one, dies on the cross. Who goes free? The guilty criminal, right? Uh, how can that be right? This is surely a failure of justice. Uh, certainly this must diminish God's glory maybe even be a stain on his character that he would let this happen. Um, it is not justice, we would cry out. But the preacher writes this, uh, the writer of Hebrews, I call him the preacher because it's a sermon, right? He says this, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, and then notice what he says. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. An amazing statement. 
He says that, that what God did in sending Jesus, what God did in allowing Jesus to go to the cross instead of Barabbas, it was an injustice. But it was also grace. It was God's grace that Jesus might taste death for everyone. Um, in essence, uh, the, writer, the writer of Hebrews makes two statements about this, this verse. The first is that Jesus did indeed suffer death. Uh, and there's a sense in which this suffering was unjust. But it was also right and good because it was the display of God's grace. And what he says here is basically uh, justice is good and right and important, but God's grace is better. Right? God's grace is better. God's grace in sending Jesus to die on the cross does not cancel grace, right? He's not saying that uh, does not cancel justice. He's not saying that grace cancels out and makes justice irrelevant. In fact, what Jesus did dying on the cross does not cancel justice. It satisfies justice. Uh, God's grace is his offer of pardon and forgiveness for all of us, all of our crimes and our hostility against him. Uh, and justice demands punishment for those crimes. So how can God uphold grace and justice at the same time? Well, he did it perfectly by sending Jesus to die on the cross so that he might taste, as it said, taste death, taste the vile and bitter experience of death for everyone, for you and I. And in that, the demand of justice is fully met. And God pours forth grace through his Son. Uh, he begins his sermon by saying, in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son. And if there's a message that he's speaking louder than anything else, it is, it is that he is speaking a message of overwhelming grace to you and I. Um, and the question is, what, what is the best possible world? Remember, God in a sense is compelled to create the best, the most glorious, the most significant place. Um, and it's true that a world with perfect justice is good. We all long for it. We all hope for it, right? Uh, and, and how we look forward to the day when the world will live with perfect justice. Um, but a world with justice and grace is better. Right? A world with justice and grace is even better. You know, honestly, Islam upholds a world of justice. But in that world... Well, we can kind of see the bloody results of that worldview, right? But, but God puts forth a different kind of world, not just one of justice, but one also of grace. There is one kind of glory in a world of perfect justice, but there is something much more grand and glorious in a world where there is both perfect justice and the outpouring of God's love and grace. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing he says about this is he says that... Um, uh, that we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Right? There, there, is, there is the glory also of suffering. The suffering of Jesus on the cross does not diminish his glory. Instead, it is a new kind of glory that was not possible before the cross. Remember, it says that God the Son was the, um, 
the radiance of God's glory, right? God is full of glory. But is there any possible way to add to God's infinite glory, more glory? Well, there was a way. And it was through the suffering of death. Uh, Jesus received a crown of glory as the result of the cross that was not possible for God before. Uh, The display of his grace at this incredible price uh, really does take the glory and, and heart and compassion of God to a whole new level. It reveals something about God that we could never have known otherwise. Um, so, uh, in, in, in the cross, uh, nothing has been lost of God's original glory, but instead it, it has been expanded and increased. We see now the glory of God's grace poured out through suffering and death, through the agony of the cross, as Jesus took our place and bore our iniquity and sin. So that's why in the book of Revelation, speaking of that future kingdom, John writes that he looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But he is worthy because he was slain. The incarnation and specifically Jesus' death uh, made possible by the incarnation did not diminish his glory, but it expands it and extends that glory. It increases the depth of what his glory is. And so Jesus received a greater crown of glory because he died. Last argument. Last thing he says um, uh, is that he is also bringing many sons to glory. Uh, In other words, uh, while Jesus fulfilled God's purpose for humanity and himself, through his death he also makes it possible for you and I to fulfill God's plan for us. Um, uh, you know, the big thing now is DYI. Was, do you know what DYI stands for? It took me a while to figure this out. Do it yourself, right? And, and what's great is now there's videos that will tell you how to do it yourself. So I remember several years ago, this was several versions of iPhone back, like maybe an iPhone 3. Uh, when you broke your screen on your phone, there was a video explaining to you how to do it yourself where you could take the broken screen off and put a new one on. So we ordered a new screen, and I could do this myself. There's a video. How hard can it be, right? (laughs) Bad idea. Really bad idea. Because not only did I end up breaking the screen, but I ended up ruining the whole phone, right? Well, the reality is that um, the, the solution to fix our problem, that we have disqualified ourselves as rulers over creation, There is no do-it-yourself solution. Humanity cannot fix this on our own. Uh, We need help. And Jesus' death on the cross is the solution for that. So verse 10 he says, For it was fitting that he, that uh, that is God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is bringing us to glory, bringing many sons to glory through the cross. 
What he means by that is he's restoring our glorious purpose that God intended for us in creation. That, that we were made a little lower than the angels, but he has crowned us with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under our feet. Right? That now is made possible because of Jesus. So not only will he fulfill that, but as we, be, as we follow him, as we are saved, we too will, can fulfill that destiny for mankind. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6 says this, Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God made us alive together with Christ by By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amazing. He saved us. He's cleansed us. He raised us up with Jesus. But then it says he has seated us with him in heaven. Where is Jesus sitting? On the throne of David, at the right hand of the majesty of high. And we are sitting there with him. What that means is that we rule with him. Right, he restores us to our place of rulers over creation. Although in this world, the mosquitoes and the rats still won't listen to you. But one day they will. One day they will. Right? He restores uh, our, the, the divine destiny that, that God gave to us. But more than that, he says, he says in verse 10, he says, for this was fitting. Right? In other words, this was the right thing to do. And he doesn't want us to miss this point. And the word fitting could be easily overlooked. Um, it really has the idea of this is the absolutely best and right thing that could be done. It's the best. It's fitting, not just that, well, it was one good thing. No, it means it was the, it was the most appropriate action. It was the best thing that God could do. It was absolutely fitting and appropriate for God to do this. Uh, that, in, that in leading many sons to glory, that, that uh, the founder of their faith should suffer. Um, God had many options before him. He could have created a world where sin was impossible. Right? That was a possibility for him. Um, but, but there was something better. There was something more appropriate. And that was to create a world where sin was possible because it meant that where sin was possible, grace would also be possible. And in God's wisdom and in his economy, that is better. That's why God let evil in the world so that he could also display his grace. Now, is that going to satisfy everybody? Are you going to go to your unsaved friends and say, well, I know why God, there's evil in the world. It's because God wanted to show his grace. They're not going to buy it, right? Because they don't understand God's perspective. But it's a truth. It is a truth. He says it is more appropriate that the world is this way where God's grace could be poured out than any other option of what God could have created. It was fitting. Uh, and here he calls Jesus the founder of salvation. And, and um, truly, uh, it's, a, it's, it's an okay word. He's the one who founded our faith by his death on the cross. He made it possible. But the word, especially in the common Greek of, of, of that day, the word would have been understood by the average person not as a founder, but as a hero or a champion. In fact, in, in that era of, of history, the Greeks had many legends in, in their myths of their gods, and, and one of their favorite characters was Hercules. And we probably all know about Hercules, super strong. And he was what? He was a hero. He was a champion. And this is the word that was used to describe uh, Hercules in his feats of rescue and saving people. Right? He was founder. He was champion 
of their salvation. And that's really what he has in mind here when he speaks of Jesus. He is the champion of our salvation. Uh, and it says that he is made, made perfect through his suffering. Not that Jesus was flawed, that he had, like we suffer and we are perfected, meaning God takes the rough edges off. Jesus had no rough edges. But here the word perfection has the idea of being fully equipped for everything he needed to fulfill his mission. What he needed to fulfill his mission was he needed an appropriate blood offering. And through his death, that was perfectly supplied by his own blood. Uh, that's how Jesus saved us. And, and in that, he is a superhero. Right? He waged war against sin and death, against Satan, the forces of evil, and our own fallen human flesh. And by the cross and with his own blood, he conquered them all. Um, And the truth is there is glory in a hero who rescues and saves people by dying. Uh, Sadly, in the news, another horrible school shooting this past week, uh, another sign of just the brokenness and sinfulness of our world. Uh, But it's interesting, out of that account came several stories of teachers who, who they call heroes because they said that they stepped in front of the gunman and they took in their own body the bullet shots that, that, that would have struck students, right? And, and that, that is heroic. There's something we know that's noble and right about that. And so much more when we speak of Jesus, right? Who took uh, the shots of sin and death on the cross for us. Stood in our place on the cross, as our hero and our champion. Um, That's glory, right? That, That is his glory. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.